Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we explore the latest in blockchain technology and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna. And me, Frederick. In this episode, Anna sits down with Sonny to talk about his journey to Cosmos, a bit about that protocol and his work as a blockchain validator. Today, I'm sitting with Sonny from Cosmos. How's it going, Sonny? Going well. How are you doing? Very good. So I say Sonny from Cosmos, but... Do you would you say like are you Sunny from Cosmos or are you Sunny the validator or are you Sunny the podcast host? Uh, I guess a little bit of all, but you know I like to. I, I would say my my, my 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 head is mostly in Cosmos with and everything else I do is uh, just you know validator. I'm trying to help Cosmos as much as possible and in Epicenter, you know, it, it helps me learn, and so you know all that learning goes back into improving Cosmos. And we're sitting here actually in New York during Blockchain Week. There is a little bit of noise in the background you may or may not hear. Um, so how was your week, Sunny? My week was pretty great. Yeah, New York Blockchain Week was a little bit, you know, stressful. Like, you know, lots of running around and stuff. But overall, I, 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 love, New Jer- I love New York. I, I, mean, I grew up in New Jersey. And so this is like my city. Nice. Were you here last year? Yeah, I've been here for the past two years. How does it compare? way quieter like last year was like insane this year much emptier i think it was so much saner Mm -hmm. no lambos outside this year no lambos people have been humbled but people are optimistic so what i realized uh in setting up this interview with you is i don't actually know that much about your background where did you start (laughs) sure um (laughs) I guess, you know, you could say I first learned about blockchain, like in high school, I I heard about Dogecoin sponsoring the Jamaican bobsled team. Wow. And I just thought, what? (laughs) (laughs) And so I kind of looked into it. I didn't really think. And then there's this guy, senior year of high school, there's a really scammy project that people may have heard of. It's called Veritasium. It's like kind of made it into the top 40 during like peak 2017, like super weird scammy project. But that guy, Reggie Middleton, I think his name was, he kind of like, I was at a hackathon senior year high school, and he was kind of like going on about, it was in New York, uh, where we are now, and he was kind of going on about like, oh, Bitcoin is going to be like the next big thing. And so uh, when I got to Berkeley, so I went to school in UC Berkeley, I was studying computer science and political economy. And so I kind of remembered what he was talking about Bitcoin, and I was like, okay, this seems like a cool combination of these two fields and how maybe and you know i was generally kind of pretty libertarian-ish and stuff and so there was a small bitcoin club at uh berkeley only like five six people and so i went there and i had no clue what was going on because they were just like they were talking about like like something about the ring signatures in monero and it was just like whoosh way over my head (laughs) you jumped in like at a very advanced level yeah so i have no clue what's going on, but somehow I felt a little bit smarter by osmosis. I felt I was just like, felt smarter being in the room with them. And so I just kind of kept going. Um, and then what I did was the fall, sophomore next year, uh, I started teaching a class on Bitcoin. Uh, me and two friends from that small club. And we just said, you know, my strategy when I want to learn something is I'll sign up to teach it then I better learn it. And so I did the same thing. I taught a class on Switzerland once just because I wanted to learn about Switzerland. Um, <laughs> That's nice. Yeah, I like teaching. So through that, I kind of learned about it. Um, very, back then, we were all like very, very Bitcoin maximalist, like that entire club. Um, so this wasn't blockchain at Berkeley. No, this, so was this was like the Bitcoin predecessor of Berkeley. Block- yeah. Okay. And so the, keep in mind, this club was like five, six people. Um, <laughs> and it was mostly just a bunch of people just like hanging out, like getting dinner and just like talking about like, Bitcoin, just like, oh, what's Roger Ver up to these days? And like, what year was that roughly? 2015. Okay. Yeah. So, and then um, what happened was after that class, we started teaching that class, we got about 60 students the first semester. And from that, we kind of had this idea like, oh, what if we like turn, you know, first of all, first off, we realized like, okay, half the stuff we talk about isn't Bitcoin. We started talking about like, you know, Monero and Zcash was com- just coming out at that time. And uh, 
back then we were much more f- interested in privacy, like scalability is like, oh, okay, whatever. That's cool. But like, you know, for some reason we were all like really into like Bitcoin mixers and stuff. So Zcash was coming out at that time. So then we we're like, okay, we don't talk about Bitcoin half the time. Let's just call it, rename it to blockchain at Berkeley. And it's kind of just like scrap that old club. Let's just start a brand new club and just, you know, kind of let's make this like a cool, you know, we saw there wasn't many uh, big blockchain clubs in like in universities. Uh, the biggest was probably the one at the MIT Bitcoin Club. But other than that, there really wasn't too many. So we're like, all right, let's make this like the center of blockchain education on the West Coast. I didn't actually realize that you were part of the f- sort of founding of blockchain at Berkeley. Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, and that's funny because it's not a pro- it wasn't a program; it was a club. Yeah, but actually, but a lot of you are now working in it. Yeah. Are you? Did you finish your degree? No, I didn't. So, <laughs> oh, you're one of those. <laughs> I'm one of those. Yeah. Uh, what happened was summer after sophomore year, uh, I was interning at Consensus for a little bit. Uh, wasn't a huge fan. I don't know. Some, I just kind of want to work more protocol layer stuff. They were much more application layer at the time. I think the Pegasus team didn't quite exist at that time. It, it was just getting started. Uh, so. I worked on like their Consensus Academy stuff, and I worked on this cool project they call the Lethio. But kind of halfway through the summer, I kind of just like stopped showing up, uh, and kind of just, I told them like, "Hey, I'm going to switch to like part time or something." And but that summer, I met this guy Nate Rush, who was also interning at Consensus with me, and he and I kind of just got like obsessed with proof of stake. So that summer, I was living in New York, but I feel like I didn't enjoy it uh, because two two reasons: one, I wasn't 21, but two. Um, <laughs> I just, me and Nate just spent every evening that summer just like reading white papers. Like we didn't do anything else. And I'm like, so that's kind of why I want to move back to New York. Cause like, I'm, I need to enjoy it this time. Well, it sounds like you did something productive, I did, but I hear you. It's you, like you missed the experience. Yeah, yeah. You know, the classic New York lifestyle. I don't know. I don't know if it's Might a thing. Be <laughs> Probably. Um. <laughs> um, yeah. So we started just really deep diving into proof of stake together. And so we started reading a lot of Vlad stuff and Vitalik stuff and Jay stuff. And so, um, while doing that, I kind of saw Tendermint and I'm like, oh, wow, what a nice, like, practical implementation of uh, proof of stake that I can think can actually, like, work pretty quickly. And then Nate was more like, oh, no, this, like, Casper CBC is this most beautiful, elegant thing mankind has ever created. And so. And then your friendship ended. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I he hope that's ended, not the case. No, no, no. We, we run a tiny little podcast together still. Uh, oh, good. Yeah. Um, so he, but now, so he actually started reach out to Vlad and started working with Vlad directly on uh, Casper CBC. And I reached out to Tendermint and I'm like, hey, I know you guys are doing some cool proof of stake stuff. Uh, how can I get involved with you there? Or when was that roughly? 2017. Mid? Mid, yeah. So summer 2017. So June cool. 2017. Like before that, the whole Cosmos fundraiser, like I, I wasn't part of that or anything. I, so Max Fang pointed out the fundraiser to me once. And like I said, keep in mind, back then we were all super Bitcoin maximalists. And so I looked at it and I'm like, oh, proof of stake. Psh, that thing doesn't work. Whoa. Yeah. You know, we were, we were, it, was, it was like that. We had like a talk about like, um, I think for one of the class, we had a lecture on scalability. Yeah. And, uh, you know, 90% of it was on lightning and stuff. And we were like, oh, you know, increasing block times, sorry, decreasing the block time. That's, that's, that's insane. How could you ever even think of doing that? Wow. <laughs> So from there, you joined Cosmos. What was Cosmos like at that time? They, had they just done the fundraise? Yeah, so it was like a month or two after the fundraiser just happened. And so we were kind of, back then, we had told people we would launch uh, the Cosmos hub mainnet by Q4 2017. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> really? we were like, oh, we can just knock this out. Oh, Easy. My goodness. Um, it turns out that didn't quite happen. Uh, and so, but at that thing, it was pretty small. I think I was like definitely maybe the eighth person to join the team, I think. So, uh, it was much smaller. The team was much smaller than it is today. And it was pretty cool. Like, you know, I just felt like I was learning a lot. I mean, Jim Yang, who's like the seat, the head of strategy there right now, he, he's kind of the one who brought me on and, you know, he was like teaching me and I got to learn a lot from Jay and Ethan, um, and then come the end of the summer, I was just like, wow, this is just such a great learning experience. I think I'm, I learned more in the last month than I did in like while in school. So it's like, I'm like, all right, I'm just going to drop out and join this full time. Do you think that, so I, I mean, I've met a bunch of people in the space who have dropped out. Yeah. Um, 
I don't think it's, I personally don't think it's the greatest thing for everyone, but mm-hmm. in your case, like, do you regret leaving school? Um, no. I mean, I think school universities have three purposes, which is education, community, and degree or signaling. I think education is free if you want it. Like I've been taking a lot of edX and Coursera courses, um, taking on like game theory, cryptography, taking a great one called, um, economics of money and banking it's given me so much more sympathy for fiat currencies wow like i I feel like no one should be able allowed to talk about like economics of cryptocurrencies until they take this course cool what's where is that (laughs) it's on coursera from uh, columbia university so great course and so yeah education's free then the community i think community is probably the most valuable aspect of university um this is why i continue to still live in the city of berkeley even after dropping out and so i'd still keep attending blockchain at berkeley events i'd still go like sit in on lectures i'd go hang out like you know we have an office in a cosmos office in berkeley but oftentimes i'll just go to the library to like the school library to work so i can meet people there and stuff yeah but also it sounds like because you were part of that group you kind of had the benefit of the community already yeah so i would say i couldn't have done that unless i at least was there for that first two years right so yeah join get like get bootstrap your community there and then leave unless unless a degree is necessary for what you want to do yeah so like you know there are some people who like some fields where like a degree is really necessary or i mean the other thing is it sounds like you found out what you wanted to do very young yeah in my experience i didn't know what i wanted to do so it took me a lot longer and i'm actually pretty happy i have a degree because in my search i was able to do a lot of jobs because I had a degree. Mm-hmm. And that definitely allowed me to then find what I wanted to do. So, but I think in your case, if you know what you want to do, then it makes sense. Right. I mean, you know, that's a good point. Like, I don't know. I know what I want to do right now. Who knows <laughs> how that changes in five years or not. When you not. decide to become a professional gardener, yeah. you may need to go back to school for horticulture. Horticulture, exactly. Okay. Berkeley actually has a really good horticulture <laughs> program, by the way. It's like a state school. So it actually has like the government mandate that it has to teach agriculture and mining like like mining like, yeah like, like rock mining not, not blockchain mining. <laughs> no 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 that term has totally <laughs> changed its meaning for me we could probably i wonder if we can like convince them to switch it to like you know learning blockchain might mining instead more, might be more profitable yes yeah now i think what we understand of your story is like where you started what started to get you interested you started working at cosmos mm-hmm Already, we hear kind of like your philosophy had changed. Like you had been sort of a maximalist and then you started to be open to proof of stake stuff. Yeah. Would mm-hmm. you say like, did that switch in your philosophy happen before Cosmos or did it happen during Cosmos? Like, did you yeah. join at all skeptical and then it mm-hmm. changed or like what? Yeah. I think what happened was when I, so at some point near the end of my sophomore year in 20, like, you know, maybe spring 2017, I kind of uh, started to be more open to Ethereum. Uh, I th- someone from Digix DAO came and gave a talk about Ethereum. And that was the first time. So fun fact, here's the my first experience with Ethereum. There was a hackathon in summer 2016 uh, that I was at with a friend. And I told him that, hey, I heard about this Ethereum thing. Like, I heard you can, it's a blockchain, but I heard you can build applications on it. Let's, you know, let's look at it. And so at this hackathon, the first thing we do <clears throat> is pull up reddit.com slash r slash Ethereum. And the entire front page is, OMG, the Dow just got hacked and the world is burning. We got a fork. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so I found out of Ethereum during the Dow attack. And I just like, these guys are talking about like hard forking and stuff. I'm like, all right, these people are insane. I turned it off and like didn't look at Ethereum again for like another nine months. So then finally, when that Digix Dow uh, guy came, he kind of like he finally re exposed me to Ethereum after that. And so I'm like, okay, this Ethereum thing is really cool. And so then that, like I said, then I started interning at Consensus that summer. And so I was getting really into Ethereum. Mm. Then at some, I think at Consensus 2017, I met uh, David Vorick from Saya. And he, I think I asked him about like, oh, why is uh, Saya still running on its own blockchain while Storage is like kind of switching to using Ethereum? And like, isn't everyone switching to Ethereum nowadays? Like, that's that's just a hot thing. And so he kind of pitched me on why application-specific blockchains make sense and why ASICs are actually good and 
So, you know, that just got me really thinking, you know, he kind of put the seeds of doubt of Ethereum in me and like this whole, I you know, we talked about this last time I was on the podcast, but like Ethereum empire and stuff. And so he kind of sowed those seeds for me. And so when, so like I said, I, you know, th- 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 I was thinking about this multi-chain world, but then I reached out to Tendermint with the focus of just mostly just working on uh, proof of stake. I didn't even know that the Tendermint team was the same as the Cosmos team. Mm. Uh, but when I reached out to them, they said, oh, yeah, we, we work on this thing called Cosmos. And I, so when, when, when they explained it to me, uh, two things crossed my mind. I'm like, one, okay, that sounds exactly in line with what like David was saying, and it seems to make sense with me. And two, I'm like, okay, finally, this is like the application layer for Bitcoin. I want, you know, I got into it because I want Bitcoin to be the money chain that just, and then BTC flows out of that chain and into all of these other chains and be, and act as the primary currency on many different applications. And then we don't have to pollute the Bitcoin chain with all of these applications, which is what kind of happens with Ethereum. And that's kind of how I first started approaching Cosmos. Hmm. Might be a little bit of still how I approached a little bit as well, but I think I've become way less Bitcoin maximalist. So I do see the like I do see the necess- necessity or you know, benefits of hmm. a little bit more more uh, base currencies and stuff than just Bitcoin. So far, we've never done an episode really on Cosmos. What okay. we've done is we've done an episode mm-hmm. with Ethan on test nets when you guys were running. Or I don't know if you'd really announced it yet, but you were about to do the game of stakes. Yeah. And we were talking about test nets and value bearing test nets. And I'm pretty sure he would have shared with us a very brief description of Cosmos. But now that it's launched, yeah. how do you describe Cosmos? Cosmos is, I think the best way to describe it is it's a re- somewhat of a rejection of the ethereum development frame style where it says let's put all applications on a single chain cosmos basically says okay you know smart contracting platforms are great for what they sound like smart contracting i'm making a short-term smart contract with you i'm like you know a bet or an escrow contract or icos were the perfect use case for smart contracts because they're short-term use and they need high levels of customizability that's what ethereum was meant for in my opinion when you start to build more complex applications we're talking dexes prediction markets like MakerDAO, like these kind of much more complex complexity app based applications I think that's where Ethereum starts to kind of fall apart a little bit. It can't scale uh, both technically, but also socially when it comes to who decides what upgrades to make to Ethereum. And, you know, there's so many conflicting EIPs and stuff. And it's like how you upgrade Ethereum becomes a a, a social challenge. And, you know, I don't think the Bitcoin people's way of solving it is correct either, which is, oh, we're never going to change anything. Um, So our strategy is sort of, Say, okay, if we can put all of these applications on their own chain and they kind of have sovereignty over their own chain. And this is kind of what David was telling me about. Uh, he was saying like, oh, there was like this fear of ASICs in the SIA community. And their community was able to coordinate to fork out those ASICs. And that's something they could do because they were a smaller community with heavily aligned interests. And so that's kind of where Cosmos comes at it, where we say, okay, these larger applications, whether it's a DEX or something, you know, we should put it on its own specialized chain. And but as long as it's still able to interoperate with the rest of the ecosystem, that's the nice two things that Ethereum did really well and nailed. One is the composability, where it said, you know, I can go buy a CryptoKitty using my Maker die on the zero X decks, right? Like that's something you couldn't do before Ethereum, and so that's where Cosmos's whole interoperability comes in. I want to be able to compose different applications together, and then the other thing Ethereum did was it made it really easy. You know, Solidity was is not the nicest language in the world, but you know I've done a lot of it. It's not it's not that bad anymore. It's getting better and better. And it's way better than like, you know, dealing with the spaghetti code, like that is the C++ Bitcoin core client. Mm. And so it made it way easier for developers to write more complex applications. That Because of that, we got much more diversity in applications. Pre-Ethereum, all blockchain applications were like Bitcoin or you know, Litecoin or Dogecoin. Yeah. Or send private money. There. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> The one, the few that tried to do something different was like Namecoin, right? Yeah. But like it was a fork of the Bitcoin core code base, and it just 
doesn't, it's very badly architected for its use case. Mm. So Ethereum made that easier. And so that's kind of the two things Cosmos is kind of do is basically say, okay, let's, we want that social and and technical scalability that was somewhat present in generation one, but that's with while while maintaining those nice benefits from generation two, which was the composability and ease of development. Do you, I mean, the early ETH Ethereum idea was the world computer and mm-hmm. they'd be able to run all sorts of applications on it. Um, is that more in line with what you guys have planned now that you would run applications? I mean, you mentioned these sort of different chains, yeah. but is that, is the overarching goal, this sort of idea of a world computer? So I, don't like the term world computer. That's actually probably the main issue. Saying that we can have a singular world computer, that sounds unscalable to me. Um, what I think, sorry, we actually did an epicenter episode with uh, Mark Miller from Agoric uh, just last week. And so I think he nailed it when, you know, he started talking about like, what we really need is BFT computers. That doesn't mean the BFT is world scale, but you know, at the end of the day, these blockchains are just third parties, but they're highly decentralized third parties and therefore somewhat more secure, maybe. But, you know, if we're trying to settle something between us, we're kind of saying, okay, instead of having a third party escrow, we'll use this blockchain third party as an escrow. And so, you know, does that mean that? And so, what you really are going to have is a world of many BFT computers that are all connected to each other. And that's kind of where like the internet of blockchains catchphrase of Cosmos comes in, where it's like, no, we don't no, we don't want a single world computer. That's 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 crazy. We want many BFT computers that are connected in a worldwide network. When you think of like the sort of ETH 2.0 and the shards, is that at all related to what you're thinking mm-hmm. about? What's the difference between Cosmos and ETH 2.0? Well, one thing with E2.0 is it still continues this uh, idea of still using the EVM or whether it's WebAssembly, but some common VM that's really designed for smart contracting. And so, and then it also kind of says, E2.0 says all of the shards in E2.0 kind of have common security where they have to use the same, they all have the same security requirements, which makes sense in the Ethereum world. It, I think it makes actually a little bit less sense in Polkadot. But in Ethereum, it makes sense because all of these shards are, you know, we, we if you want a highly secure uh, smart contracting platform, you know, you want, and smart contracts are interacting with other smart contracts and other chains on other shards. Yeah, you know, maybe they should have somewhat equivalent security because they're supposed to be homogenous. Cosmos, on the other hand, and Polkadot as well are, are kind of really focused more on heterogeneous chains and shards, right? Where they're application specific. One one shard might be CryptoKitties and the other shard might be MakerDAO. I think we'd agree that those probably don't need equivalent security. Mm. And the CryptoKitties people are overpaying for security. That's why you know their fees are higher when they don't need, they shouldn't be paying that much for security. They're overpaying. And so that's where Cosmos kind of approaches it, where we say no, these different chains don't need equivalent security. And so we allow them to either figure out their own security model with, by doing sovereign chains, whether they want to use permission validator sets or proof of stake or even proof of work if they wanted to. They can have their they can figure out their own security or they can ask the Cosmos hub to lease security. But that's also done in a more... Uh, kind of diversified way designed for heterogeneous chains where even in Polkadot where they kind of have the same similar idea but there all of the parachains kind of have to have equivalent security which Mm -hmm. I think is kind of missing the point when you're getting into a world of heterogeneous chains In, in Cosmos we can have different chains even that are doing some level of shared security uh still have different levels of security how are the how are the chains connected Actually, what are they called in Cosmos? What are the different... Are they chains? Are uh, we they... call them zones. I'm not a biggest okay. fan of the term. I mean, okay. I, I just call them chains or zones okay. or side chains. Okay, so the, how do you connect the chains in Cosmos? So what we've done is we've created a protocol called Inter-Blockchain Communication, or IBC. And essentially, at the end of the day, it's a fancy way of saying side chains. Uh, side chains are not a new concept. The, you know, I think Blockstream... 
uh, proposed them back in 2014. Uh, it's just the idea of I can do SPV or like client proofs of one chain in another chain. So I can prove something about the state of another chain. And so there have been many side chains that, that have existed, right? You know, one is a BTC relay, which is a one-way side chain from Bitcoin to Ethereum. There's uh, parity bridges, which to talk to uh, other EVM chains. What IBC is really trying to do, two things. One, this like-client protocol uh, becomes really expensive uh, when you're doing two proof-of-work chains or proof-of-work chains. Uh, I think the BTC relay... Because what happens is when proof of work, you have to transmit every single block header mm. uh, to sync the chain. And I think the BTC relay contract hasn't been, I think no one's been transmitting headers in like months. And so you can't actually use BTC relay because it hasn't been synced up to mm. the mainnet. And to sync it up to the mainnet would take so much gas right now on Ethereum that I don't think it's worth it for anyone to do it altruistically. And so one thing that Tendermint or BFT protocols do in general, but Actually, more specifically, Tendermint is it provides a very efficient light client proof where you can quickly skip blocks as long as the validator set doesn't change by more than a third in a block. And so that means we could probably jump like thousands of blocks at a time because if the validator set like isn't going through too much of churn. Which is one of the reasons I'm not a huge fan of like sortition based stuff that changed the validator set every block because now you made the light client very expensive again. So, because of this uh, much more efficient light clients, we are able to actually do this IBC sidechains protocol in a much more efficient way. Hmm. The second thing that we're trying to do here is. Oh wait! Before you go on, uh, the like client. So what you what you just described. It's like you 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 don't have to verify each one. You can skip for the like client. What does that mean exactly? Like what are you? Yeah. Maybe describe mm-hmm. what a like client is in this capacity. Sure. So a like client is basically saying I'm not running a full node. Mm-hmm. I'm only syncing the headers of a chain, and then I can use uh, Merkle proofs to know that something happened in that chain that I wanted to happen. Yeah, and, we've we've actually covered mm-hmm. like clients generally on the podcast but what you just Mm -hmm. described is like you're are you even skipping you're not even registering all the headers yes so this is a this is a unique like client yes okay so because what happens in proof of work let's say uh i wanted if let's say i went home at night and i turned off my phone and i turn it on in the morning again overnight there's been what six times eight so 48 bitcoin blocks that came overnight my phone takes about, I've, I've tested it, I can do about three to four shot 56 hashes per second. So that means it'll take my phone still at least over 10 seconds just to sync the Bitcoin block headers over that came overnight. And that's Bitcoin, which has very infrequent blocks and a very easy hashing algorithm. I actually haven't taken the time to measure it for Ethereum yet. Uh, but, you know, ETHash is a much more complex hashing algorithm that's more expensive and this blocks every 15 seconds. So it'll, it might, I don't know, I don't, I don't want to say this is true, but, you know, it might take my phone a minute just to sync that. Mm. What Tendermint does is, be, what happens is every block, the validator set from this block, signs on the validator set of the next block. And so what, and so at a certain time, you may have a trusted validator set who, you know, you know that you synced up the chain and they got to this point legitimately. Then what you, but then you go offline and come back like five days later. If the validator set hasn't changed by more than a third, that means at least two thirds of your last trusted validator set is still in the current validator set. And they, you can see their signatures on the next uh, validator set as well. And so you can say, okay, at least two thirds of my last trusted validator set is approving of the current validator set. So that means I can trust it. I can trust it. And so I can skip Mm. all the blocks that came in the last five days. I don't have to sync all of those headers. So how does the light client and the IBC actually interact? What's the connection? What you'll be doing is on in the state machine of chain B, you'll be running a light client of chain A. I see. And so that's why what will happen is I can take a token or something on chain A and lock it up in a special, I'll call it a smart contract, in a special spot in the uh, smart contract in the in the, in the state machine. And then I submit a light client proof to chain B saying, hey, look, 
here's proof, cryptographic proof based on the header and a Merkle proof that I've locked my token away. And then Chainb will mint you a token saying, oh, this is a claim to the underlying locked asset on Chain A. And I can do whatever I want with this claim. I can send it to someone, I can do whatever. And whoever has access to it, they can then go back and what they can do is they can burn it on Chain B in a special burning contract or something. And they can submit like client proof of that burning to chain A, and it will unlock that lock token and give it back to them. And what you just described is a bridge. Yes. We had um, POA Network on, we had Igor yeah. on. We actually had a big conversation about bridges. Uh, yes. And it sounded very similar. He said that there was two ways of doing it. You could either mint and burn. Yeah. Or what was the other thing he did? There was like lock and unlock? I mean, if it's lock and unlock, that's necessary when two chains maybe are relatively separate with each other mint and burn makes more sense when there's people because you don't want to burn the original asset you only want to lock it if you burn it that might make sense in an ethereum like system where like all the shards are kind of you know the master shard we just assume all of them have similar security and that like you know the entire system is like secure in the same way so it's okay to like you know allow the accounting to be a little bit more loose in cosmos where chains might not trust my bft computer might not trust the bft computer that you're using Mm -hmm. and so we need more guarantees and like accountability like keeping track of like uh that yeah so making sure we lock it rather than burning it is important so you guys do the lock you don't but didn't you just say you mint and burn on the we lock we lock the asset on chain a Uh uh-huh mint an asset on b okay burn on b unlock on i a. see and so that was what i think yeah. Igor had said something like that he was like you can either do mint and burn mint and burn mint and burn lock and unlock yeah unlock un- and lock and lock and unlock those yeah. were like the options yeah and you guys are doing so is there one is it always like directional it's like if you are moving funds from one to another it's always going to be lock and unlock on the chain that it's moving from and then mint and burn on the one it goes to yeah when we're talking about assets here right token transfers ibc is pretty you know generalized you know the side chains paper from bitcoin you know from blockstream they were really focused just on assets and that's where we started as well so that's kind of why we still use that side chains terminology rather than uh bridges because we came from that bitcoin mindset there um but IBC is, like I said, all you're doing is proving some state to another. So token transfers and asset transfers are the easiest thing to start with, but you can start doing more complex things. For example, you know, let's say you have two EVMs on two different chains. You can, in theory, do a smart contract call from one chain to another. I personally am not a fan of that. One, because, you know, no one's really figured out what the design of that will look like. And, you know, the ETH 2.0 people are kind of working through that stuff right now. But I think there's, you know, maybe better designed VMs for that purpose. And so one of the ones that, you know, we're really, I'm really interested in and we're working closely with is a project called Agoric. And so they kind of have this very fascinating smart contracting VM uh, that allows, it's basically uh, object capability-based security, which is super interesting to me. And I think it is the right way of doing uh, cross-chain like Mm. contract and stuff. When you talk about, so you kind of mentioned the comparison to ETH2, you Mm -hmm. hinted at a comparison to Polkadot. Um, what you've described, I mean, in, in, in what you described as the difference, you said that the difference has to do with this, do you need generalized security or can you have chains of different security levels? Yep. Like you sort of described. So like some chains, like the CryptoKitties chain maybe doesn't need the same levels of security as the maker chain. Mm-hmm. But what happens if you're interacting between these two? Like, does, like what if you were able to sort of corrupt the CryptoKitty yeah. One and then you would basically lock. What, do you, what would you do in that case? You'd lock a CryptoKitty token and you'd send it to a more secure one, mm-hmm. and it would mint an, on the new, on the more secure chain. Would it still mint it? Yeah. It's like, is there any way? Like, wouldn't that then mean that the the bridge itself could be an attack vector? Yes, and so that's why the what happens is you have to have trust. It, so when a token moves across the system, it kind of 
you have to trust all of the chains and which it goes through. And that's why I, I like to avoid saying that you mint the asset on the same asset on the other chain. I like to say you mint a claim to the asset mm-hmm. on the other chain. So what happens is when I locked a CryptoKitty on one chain and I minted that CryptoKitty on the other chain, I didn't mint a CryptoKitty to that chain. I, I minted a, a claim, claim to that underlying CryptoKitty. And so that, that by using that terminology of a claim, I think it instills to people that you also still have to trust that original CryptoKitty chain because if there's no underlying CryptoKitty, then your claim is also like useless. But like, what if there's a chain that I don't have any control over, which is bridged to like my chain? Yeah. Can I, it, it, the, the bridge already exists. Can I prevent them from from doing that from minting on my chain um if you can prove that a chain has gotten corrupted uh you can submit that proof to the uh bridge and it will close the bridge uh, um but no i mean you you in general let's say that that hasn't happened yet and you know let's they can still continue to mint assets on your chain and just say oh, users have to be aware that that's not you know the, that has a security requirement there what, one of the things the Cosmos Hub helps with is it, it keeps some sorts of invariance between chains. So it prevents chains from double spending other chains. So let's say the hub is connected to many zones as well as the Bitcoin blockchain. BTC might flow into the Cosmos Hub and into chain A. Chain A, what it should do, if people, users want to go to chain B, instead of sending BTC to chain B directly, now you have a path that's like chain B, chain A, hub, and Bitcoin. You have to trust all those four chains. What you should instead do is withdraw the claim from chain A back to the hub and then, then send it to chain B. So you, 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 don't, you should try to shorten the path whenever possible so there's less to trust. And the hub keeps track saying that, oh, I know that there's only five BTC on chain A right now. So even if chain A gets corrupted, then only, you know, chain chain A can't send out 10 BTC. Can't double spend. Yeah, it only has five BTC. So, you know, the users who have on chain A, maybe they might get defrauded, but the overall network doesn't collapse just because one chain gets defrauded. You just mentioned the hub. Mm-hmm. What we should do here mm-hmm. is um, explain to the listeners what the pieces of the Cosmos network are. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned the hub. Yeah. You mentioned the IBC. Mm-hmm. So let's let's try to create a map, like a mm-hmm. visual map for people. Or actually, it would be an auditory map because <laughs> we don't have any visuals. <laughs> sure. So essentially, what will happen is you'll have chains that can set up an IBC connection to any other chain they want that also supports IBC. So IBC, you have to, your chain has to natively support IBC. It's something you have to build into the system. And this in other contexts would be the bridges. Yes. yes. Okay. Now, just like any airport in the world can theoretically fly to any other airport in the world, for practical matters, what we'd end up seeing in basically any network system is you see hub and spoke hub and spoke like architectures begin to arise, and so this I is like hub and spoke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so this is what the purpose of hubs is in this system is it helps reduce the number of IBC connections or bridges in the network from order of n squared to n, right where. And that doesn't mean that there's a singular hub. That means that there will be a couple of hubs that are connected to each other and then are connected to many chains that kind of you that use the hub. So these these hubs in the system, there's already two uh, hubs that are, are, are in the Cosmos system. There's one called the Cosmos Hub, which is, I agree, a terrible and confusing name. And then there's another one called Iris, Iris Hub. Um and so what these hubs should be are they're also application-specific blockchains, and their application is being optimized for transmitting IBC packets. And that, that's like what they are focused on and other features that they can provide as hubs, such as providing these shared security features and whatnot to uh, their patron chains, let's call them. Cool. I, I really like I like your use of the metaphor of the airports because that mm-hmm. definitely you can sort of visualize that somehow. Yeah. Um, right now you said there's two. Mm-hmm. Are they different? Like, can they be unique in their construction or are they sort of replicas of one another? Um, yeah, they can be unique. Uh, right now, 
the Iris team has it's pretty similar to the Cosmos Hub. I mean, they do have some big changes. One of the main changes is that they really wanted automatic software upgrades. And so, like we discussed last time when I was on the Cosmos Hub, I generally don't want the ability to have automatic software upgrades. So that's already one of the main existing differences between these two hubs. And then Iris is really focused more, you know, I would say they're a little bit more on the enterprise-y side, while the Cosmos Hub is maybe a little bit more cypherpunky. I don't know if that's, I don't know, I, I like to see it that way at least. Also, Iris is really heavily focused on in China. And so, you know, people often think like, oh, you know, NEO is the Chinese Ethereum and, you know, the Chinese blank, right? I think it's actually really interesting because I'm worried about that great firewall of China. And once, if that firewall starts censoring packets going over it, then I do not want to do Tendermint consensus over that firewall because, yeah, you know, maybe you could do you could do it over a tour or something, but it'll be really slow. What I'd rather have is a major hub inside of China and a major hub outside of China that they own ha- their own little ecosystems and tender- and you're doing Tendermint consensus separately, and then they can send IBC packets to each other over the fire over the firewall through whether it's tor or you know some of the bitcoiners are working on like these cool stuff where you can like transmit over like long-range radio networks and stuff so but this is a different like those that would be much smaller i guess what you'd have to like between the hubs the communication could be a lot smaller yeah that's kind of one of the premises where we come from where is a notion of locality like that's kind of one of the premises of the whole application specific blockchains is that in an application most of the transactions stay within that application and then the minority mm. are elsewhere. That's kind of one of the problems with like, I think the ETH 2.0 kind of design is where let's say you're randomly interacting with another contract on Ethereum on ETH 2.0. And let's say that, for example, there's 10 shards. There's a 90% chance that the contract you're interacting with is on another shard and the interchain communication is the bottleneck. So when you have application-based specific systems, it's like, you know, let's say a DEX, most of the transactions are probably trading on the DEX, and the minority are probably deposits and withdrawals from the DEX. And so that, you know, that helps. And then the other kind of locality is uh, geographical locality. You know, I'm a big believer in, and so is Ethan Buckman, he's the really one who got this idea into me, was about like, you know, localized blockchains. Most of the financial transactions you do probably every day are people in your close geographical proximity. You know, I go out by lunch and, you know, they're, they're most of them are from in a single town or maybe, you know, neighbor, like even sometimes a neighborhood. And so you can get way more locality that way. I One thing I'm not really clear on is like, since these, to me, like these are independent blockchains that you're talking about, the hub are also blockchains right Mm -hmm. so how are they actually localized like are they not decentralized as well like do they not have their own nodes and like node operators that are spread out all over i just i don't quite Mm -hmm. understand how there's like a chinese node or a chinese hub yeah so that we could be talking on two layers we could be talking on the user layer and we can be talking about the consensus layer and so first from the user layer Let's say that the, you know, that's kind of where that locality of transactions comes in, where if there's, you know, we have, let's say we have, we're in New York City right now, right? We have NYC chain, right? Where it's just for payments within New York City. If all the users, people who are actually making transactions and, you know, we all have accounts on the New York City chain, we're just moving money quickly in the New York City chain and not, and very few transactions are going to other chains. So that's kind of what I mean by user locality maybe the blockchain nodes are could be geographically distributed for example but user the users of the chain everyone who has accounts on that might still be localized mm-hmm. now you can also take it a step further and localize the consensus layer like say all the validator nodes have to be somewhat localized as well so you know tendermint it becomes faster you know it's limited by the speed of light right and how fast nodes can communicate so if we can move stuff closer and all the chains in a localized area, then we can actually, uh, that helps as well. And, you know, I'm a fan of this idea of one of the nice things about Cosmos in the sovereign chains is you can have additional requirements beyond just proof of stake. So let's say a town could say, oh, the validators of this chain have to be 
New York City residents. Mm -hmm. Or I I helped this project called uh, Liberland. It's just like little joke country, like micronation. It's like a strip of land next to a river. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right between Serbia and Croatia. I actually visited it once. It's cool. And so, you know, I helped them out with some like blockchain stuff. And, you know, I was telling them like, you know, what you could do is have your system be proof of stake. But it also, to be a validator, you also have to be a Liberland citizen. That seems to make sense. And you can, you can, and I think it actually gives you higher security than if you didn't have it. Because I think sometimes like crypto econ people think that economics or security is the only thing that matters when in reality, people have political and social motivations, right? And so if all the people are Liberland citizens, maybe they're less likely to want to attack the system. Hmm. And I'm trying to picture. So like, say you have these, a small, you have a tiny localized blockchain. I mean, the the thing that's a bit scary here though is like, what if you're so localized down to like five of your friends and you all ran the same nodes? I mean, this is kind of going back to that idea of like a corrupted. Yeah. I One thing I'm curious of is like, how does an IBC get built? And like, do you prevent some of those from being built? Like, do you, cause like, what if I, me and five friends are like me alone, my local computer, I have the node, I have one, it's one node, it's my blockchain and I yeah. do all sorts of, double spending stuff and I try to like interact with it. You sort of mentioned that there's like almost like a, like a court system or something that would knock it down. But like before, before you know that I'm malicious, um, can I, can I build an IBC? Can I build a bridge? Yeah. And, but you know, all the only funds that would be at risk there are funds that users willingly put onto that chain. So if it's just a chain with you and five friends, it's probably only people who are probably going to be using that is you and your five friends. And that's okay. That makes sense. Like, you know, people say that like, you know, we're going to use lightning to settle transactions between our friends and lightning just makes like, assumes that there is zero trust that that exists Mm -hmm. the entire world and thus makes it actually very expensive to transact. And, you know, if I just have a group of my friends, like, you know, I can make a little side chain for ourselves and we can just do all of our transactions there. And, you know, I have trust in the majority of my friends. So out of my 10 friends, I, you know, I assume at least five of them are honest, right? And, you know, if that's not the case, I should probably go find better friends. (laughs) (laughs) But what would happen if, if like, it's not, I'm not worried about the chain itself where I do the double spending yeah, or the five friends do the double spending. I'm more like when you start pushing it, kind of going back to that other question, when you push it towards these other chains. Yeah. But so let's so say this you, is this is what I want to understand. This like so say I do it. Let's go through the steps. I create an IBC. I'm allowed. I mm-hmm. bridge to somewhere. I do the lock and unlock on my chain. I mint on another. What what token are chain. we locking and unlocking? Are there, is there any chain? Let's oh. say let's say I make a I make a token that's super generalized. Just a like brand a, new token. It's a brand new token. Yeah. Uh, I guess the trick is here, like, I need to have some value in it. Yeah, I can't okay. mint BTC on my chain. Okay, okay, but- okay. So I have to have a chain. So then I see what you're saying. It's like, I get five friends. We have a little mini economy. Yeah. It has very minor value. Yeah. But I lock it on my chain. I double spend. Mm-hmm. I lock and unlock. All right, well, in this case, lock. I mint on a new chain. I yeah. get that money. I do something with it. Yeah. And then it turns out it's faulty. Mm-hmm. It's total bullshit. I like disappear. Because that, because that <laughs> original five person chain faulted somehow. Yes. Yes. And so when you're using a token on another chain that came at it over IBC, you, you should be able to see where this token originated from. And if you don't trust the origin chain, then you shouldn't be using this token. So I can, if I don't trust Bitcoin's like root chain, I should not be using BTC on any other chain because the original chain might just fault and mm. destroy my value. Same thing here with, you know, that those fi- that to- that token that was issued by me and my four friends, you know, the people who are going to be trusting it is probably going to be pretty small. And the only people who should be using it is people who have some notion of trust in that initial issuer. And so that's wh- why there's different types of BFD computers. There's some that are going to be 
like large scale, highly decentralized global computers like the Cosmos Hub. And then there'll be some which is just me and my friends. But let's use it maybe a different example. Let's use an yeah. example of one of these chains where it's super centralized. We know it's centralized. And like so and there and it is value bearing. And it's yeah. for some reason due to speculation mm-hmm. and good marketing, people have like bought into it. They own these tokens. And what if like that central power starts to play around and they double spend? Like the question is like, could like if they don't mind destroying their own network, Mm -hmm. could they all of a sudden access a ton of funds in another chain? And and like what you said there, it's like it's traceable, sure, but like if some if it's sort of bots trading, like nobody will notice, nobody will care if somebody's selling. Yeah, I mean that's not any different than if like. You know, even today, let's say Ripple decided to inflate the hell out of XRP, right? And, you know, they could just dump it on the open market and, like, you know, I, I don't see how it's any different it, than what's on today. It's sort of like a, if they could do that on a DEX mm-hmm. right now. Yeah, it's like they can already do that on a or centralized exchange. They can do it on a centralized exchange. And so, you know, yeah, it, it widens maybe the attack surface of DEX. And so maybe it requires a little bit more education of users that you, know, you should be wary of the risks that you're taking. But, we should already be doing that today. And I think we might be doing a little bit less of that today than we're supposed to be. Would you say, say, say that, say that sort of, say it is like a major cha- a chain. And then we, we learn they've acted maliciously. What mm-hmm. would happen? Like, what is the, what is the repercussions? What can the network do? Like, is there a way to so you cancel usually, the bridge? Yeah. So that's what I said. Or the like, IBC. Yeah. So when the, uh, if you can get proof that there's that chain has ho- forked or something, right? Then, yeah, you can just cut off that bridge and say, okay, there's no more IBC connections happening. No more packs are going to flow back and forth from here. Um, you can have governance on the chain, try to figure out what to do with it. Or you can say, okay, you know, a chain, let's say it was like a legitimate fork, like, you know, Ethereum, Ethereum Classic style fork. Um, well, in that case, Ethereum Classic is the real Ethereum. But, uh, you know, <laughs> Ethereum had the improper in state transition. Um, but, you know, let's say you had a fork like that, right? And then, you know, you can have say, okay, both of them can register I, new IBC connections and governance can figure out which one gets to act as the originator of the old one. Kind of like, you know, when China broke up, right? The, the, the UN had to decide, okay, who gets its seat in the uh, uh, Security Council, Right. And so you, you, yes, that in that kind of those kind of situations, you do get a little bit fuzzy, and you have to um, kind of rely on human social coordination. Speaking of, I want to sort of switch gears and talk to you a little bit about validators and being a validator and mm-hmm. being a staker. So, Cosmos is a proof of stake system, meaning the Cosmos Hub. Ah, because. You okay. can use different chains in the Cosmos system can actually choose to use whatever security system they want. Like I said, you might have a chain that wants to be a permission validator set. Binance Dex, which is a chain in, that's building on Cosmos right now, on our software and Intense Connect, they're currently running a completely permission validator set. And that's okay. You can have proof of stake systems interacting with permission systems. You can even have a proof of work system that interacts with the proof of stake system. So the Cosmos hub is, and you know, we, I mean, I really like proof of stake. And so I encourage people if they're launching a chain in the Cosmos to use proof of stake, but there's no requirement to do that. So, but the Cosmos hub blockchain that is currently running on proof of stake. And the Cosmos hub is the one we talked about before. It's also acting as sort of like a relay point of, okay. The goal is to make it the, most secure proof of stake blockchain in the world. Okay. But it's proof of stake. It is. And so when you talk about, this is actually really helpful. When you talk about being a validator on Cosmos, you're a validator on Cosmos Hub. Yes. That, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's an unfortunate naming collision there. Got it. So you're a validator on Cosmos Hub. Yes. Are there also validators then on that other one you just mentioned, the one in Asia? Yep. Cool. And um, it's a different, like... There's some overlap. Um, I actually have a, uh, some Irish tokens myself and I, okay. uh, my, com- my value company is Sitco. We like, we have our nodes synced up. And so as soon as I get back to San Francisco, we're going to start validating on that chain as well. Cool. Back to that though. You have atoms on the Cosmos hub blockchain. Yeah. This is not only acting as a place for a uh, transaction to be relayed through or tokens to be checked. It's also acting, I guess, from what I'm understanding, as the governance area, the decision-making body. For chains that want to delegate decision-making to the Cosmos, some level of decision-making to the Cosmos Hub. Got it. Did you know when you started that you would be a validator? 
Um, no. So what actually happened was, uh, so the company that I work for, which is Tendermint, it's a for-profit company that is contracted by the Interchain Foundation to write the software for Cosmos. Hub. For the Cosmos Hub, yes. As well as some work around IBC and whatnot. So being a for-profit company, we did have the intention to, so as we're kind of approaching the end of like, you know, our contract with the uh, Interchain Foundation, basically the stuff that was laid out in the white paper, we're, we're about to finish that all. And so uh, we were, Tenderman was actually considering running a validator itself. And then we decided that I th- we think that Tenderman as a company has too much social reputation that mm. we might over-centralize the network. What if what happens if we accidentally get over 50% of the delegation? That would not be good. And so we kind of said, okay, Tenderman's not going to run a validator. We're actually going to allow a bunch of a different, any employee that wants to can go out and create a new legal entity completely distinct from uh, Tenderman, the company, and run a validator themselves. And so now we have... About there's about five validators that are created by um, Tenderman employees. So you started a validator business. Yes. And what you would do is a validator stakes their tokens, mm-hmm. and that secures the basically creates a security of the system, and then pays you a small fee. Yes. The validator fee. Yes. Rewards and it, those rewards get split, sent to uh, delegators, your delegators as well, and the validator can charge a additional commission rate if they so wish. And the delegators would be other token holders that don't want to do the validator setup. Yes, because actually, so this is what's kind of I'm curious about this. So mm-hmm. you're if you're a validator. Mm-hmm. You have a node, I imagine. Mm-hmm. You set, you download some piece of software that allows you to validate mm-hmm. on the Cosmos Hub, mm-hmm. and you are kind of like locking your tokens into this every time you do it. So you cannot yep. be day trading with them, and they're mm-hmm. sort of like locked down. Mm-hmm. How long? How long does it take to set it up? Um, so running a node is fast, but the part that interesting is you have to run a so as a validator what you're doing is you're signing on blocks and if you sign something incorrectly whether you double sign or something you can get slashed and if you fail to sign blocks you can get slashed and so what you're really doing is you're running a hyper secure hotkey and you know you can go ask any exchange or custodian that's not always a fun thing to do so in order to set it up you'd have to like do a small uh, or some sort of hardware investment. Yep. Some sort of software setup. Mm-hmm. Get a security expert on it, maybe, mm-hmm. or you're a ex- security expert yourself. Mm-hmm. Make sure it works very well. Make sure that your internet connection is really good mm-hmm. because I guess you have to be there all the time. Yep. And then you, I'm guessing, <laughs> stop me if I'm wrong, you push a button that says validate now and it sort of automatically will do these signatures. Yep consistently and the way that a validator is so okay so let's let's go really basic imagine there are 10 tokens that exist Mm -hmm. and you have two and zaki has three and someone else has four what happens for every round like are you getting a chance to sign 20 percent of the time uh you i will i will be signing every t- block okay but i will be proposing the block 20% of the time and it's only the block proposer who gets the reward no we split the reward even not evenly but uh amongst all the validators the proposer uh-huh. gets a slight benefit and there's an algorithm that we use to figure that out based off of other factors but for the most part it's split evenly amongst all the validators okay i think in my example i've listed 3 we'll add a fourth to finish it off so yeah. there's four validators mm-hmm. as individuals with different amounts of token mm-hmm. that they're staking how is the what's the breakdown like you mentioned so this the proposer will get a small advantage but then is it like equal by four it's um the proposer will get a maximum of five percent uh, that depends on some other factors and then the rest is split by stake oh, so it is by stake so yeah. then it but it would be like the person who has the the 40 percent would actually get more reward yes okay. yes being a validator, you mm-hmm. have all the architecture in place, you can stake, you yeah. can get delegates, as you just mentioned, people with tokens who want to, they don't necessarily have that set up, so they're like, oh, I'd rather you stake for me. Mm-hmm. They're kind of like your supporters. Sure. Or, yeah. Yeah. You, you're not necessarily beholden to them, but 
they're trusting you. Yes. Maybe your constituents. Yes. And every time you get your block rewards, whatever percentage that is, you then will just, you'll give it back to them and you might take a small fee. Yeah, yeah. but it automatically gets distributed. Like for example, in Tezos, that doesn't happen. Okay. And there've been some validators that have run away with their delegator's oh, funds. Wow. In the Cosmos SDK, in the Cosmos SDK, what we've done is we've designed a system where it has. automatically does it. So I can't do that. We've minimized the risk to a delegator. Could someone take that SDK and change it though? Yep. And, but then they would just have written like bad code that is malicious and yeah. But it's like what you guys are providing yep. and like anyone who delegates could actually check to make sure that whatever mm-hmm. is being used mm-hmm. is in line with that. Okay. Right. What, what it sounds like right now is, so those four validators that I mentioned, they are already token holders. They're, mm-hmm. they're already atom holders and they're validating and they're going to make some money on that. The question that automatically comes up is like, well, then wouldn't the rich just be getting richer? Like if the one who has four Mm -hmm. out of the 10, she's always going to get a larger portion of the reward, the validation reward. Mm -hmm. So her share, her general wealth will be growing faster than yours will. I mean, they will be growing at the same rate, right? Like as long as we're all getting the same, she still has 40%. And like next block, she has this block. Those who only stake sometimes, yep. they will be losing out. Yes. And so this is why we say atoms are not money. They're a staking token. So I think it's a new type of asset in the crypto space where atoms are not money. And what we say to people is if you're not staking your atoms, like you're losing. What you, yeah, you're losing out. Like, you know, maybe we want some liquid just for price discovery, but otherwise the atoms should be staked. And we actually designed an inflation system that the fewer people that are staked, the inflation ramps up. So mm. it's like, oh, here's, you should be staking. What are you doing? Go stake. You look how much money you're losing out on. That's interesting. And so that is, it's it's basically preventing people from holding yep. and sitting that's on staking. it. Yep. And this is what you want. Yes. That's a motive, like that's an incentive that you wanted to yep. put in. Yeah. I mean, you know, like I said, for us, in Cos- for me in Cosmos, like, you know, I think Bitcoin is money and I want Bitcoin to be the money across main chains or maybe other tokens like Grin or something, right? But atoms are not supposed to be the currency that people use. They're, they're, they should be staking. Do you, are you a little bit worried, though, about like creating a barrier to entry? Like right now, like what about the groups that want to enter later? Mm-hmm. I mean, there, the price to participate will get higher and higher. Wouldn't yeah. it? Like, in order to actually get anything that would be usable, you need to be there early. Um, that's true, maybe, to an extent. But, you know, if someone can come with a... First of all, there is enough atoms available on the public open market that you can buy them. And the other is that, yeah, like, you know, if you're able to provide a really good product, like, you know, Bison Trails, for example, is a, you know, it's an industry-grade custodian. And, like... You know, I think I know there's a lot of excitement around them because, and so if they're able to come in and provide a really good product, then they can attract delegators to delegating to them. And then there's other levers that, you know, it, one of the other things with Cosmos is we really believe that validators are somewhat differentiated. We don't want there to be non-differentiated validators. And so, which Polkadot kind of has this assumption that like, oh, all validators are homogenous and like, you know, they can just be shuffled across chains. You know, one of the things that Cosmos Hub will do is like, like I said, once you can start staking on different chains, but validators can choose which chains they want to do shared security with. And so one of the things that delegators will look at, oh, what chains are the, is this guy like shared security with? Another thing that you could do is like, you know, one thing that Sika is planning on doing is currently we're charging a 0% commission rate just to, you know, help out people who like, but what we're going to do is when we start charging commission rate, we're going to put half of it into, send half the commission rate into a SICA DAO that will be controlled by our delegators. And then they can use it to fund, you know, one of the reasons, so I run this validator with uh, Dave Oja, who uh, he used to work at Tendermint, um, but now he focuses on doing some zero knowledge research with uh, Alessandro Chiesa on this new zero knowledge proof system. But, and so he, he, he does most of the security stuff he's been doing. 
like, you know, security hacking and stuff for like since high school. He and I got into this because we kind of, one of the things that we wanted to do was we wanted to take half of our commission rate and use it to fund open source public infrastructure that maybe isn't incentivized. So like we were thinking about like Tor relay nodes and IPFS nodes and like Bitcoin public, public nodes and stuff. And so that's, but we're like, oh, instead of us doing that, like, you know, we're trying to build this brand. It's like the people's validator. And so we were like, oh, let's give this to our delegators and let them vote on how, what they want us to fund. And like, you know, if they want to just pay themselves dividends back from that commission rate, fine. But, you know, I hope they do some cool stuff with it. Do you think of it as a long-term play or is this sort of like short-term because right now there's not that many validators and it's like a fast yeah. moneymaker? Because I, I have heard that that is how some validators are thinking. They're yeah. like, cool, there's an amazing opportunity, but soon margins will become super small mm-hmm. and like my percentage won't make sense. Mm-hmm. It won't be worth it. So now, let's just do it now and get out. So Sika, we're taking a long-term view on this where we want to be like, you know, I've been building proof of stake systems for the past two years. Like, you know, I, I design a lot of this Cosmos proof of stake and, you know, I, I really believe in this as a long-term thing. And so we want to continue being validators in the long-term. And, you know, we are scared that like, you know, I know uh, Poloniex already announced that they're going to start uh, listing, uh, staking their atoms that are on their exchanges. Um, Coinbase is going to start doing it soon too. And so we're worried about this, but Sika, our plan is, finding a good niche where, you know, that people's validator, like mantra that we're trying to push that like, you know, these are cutesy little things like, like the Sika DAO. And I, I actually minted these like, uh, like little gold Sika coins that I'm sending out, going to be sending out to the delegator soon. It's like, these are just small cutesy things. But then like when you start doing all other stuff, like, um, you know, new features like, you know, find maybe derivatives on staked atoms, for example. And when you do more complex stuff like this, then you can, I, I, I guess what it really comes down to is finding a good niche for your validator. Hmm. Cool. So one thing we didn't get a chance to talk about that much here was governance and how the whole thing is maintained, but I don't think we have time. Yeah. So that mm-hmm. might, we might need to do that another time. One other thing I'd love to do sometime is bring you together with some of the players in the other spaces so we can understand a little bit better how Cosmos is different from some of the other um, kind of interoperability plays out there. So the last thing I want to talk about is podcasting. Yes. Because <laughs> you are co-host on a podcast that's in the same space. How have you liked it? It's been great. I mean, I love it. So the name of the podcast is Epicenter, as many people probably know, but it's a lot of fun. Like, you know, I spent, I have my head all in like proof of stake and interoperability. And so what the podcast does is every week, it forces me to go learn something new every week. And so, like I said, teaching people is how I learn. And so, you know, this podcast is sort of an educational experience. And so doing all the research for that and beforehand, it's a great way to teach people, but also learn myself. Well, listen, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. 